Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4, with a message entitled The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading Revelation 19, 6 to 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You might remember that I've called this series covering Revelation 18 to 22, The End and the Beginning. The end refers to the end of the present age, the death of the city of man. The beginning refers to the new era that is to come. And as we read through these five chapters, you might notice that the break between the end and the beginning, well, it's not as neat and as clean cut as as we might have expected. Well, that's because as we read through chapter 18, we saw the death of Babylon. And now in, in chapter 19, we see the announcement of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if you've never read Revelation or if you're unfamiliar with it still, you might expect that now the appearance of the new Jerusalem would be at hand and the beginning of the new age. I mean, why not? I mean, after all, Babylon has been defeated and the church is invited to the marriage in which she is forever joined together with her Lord. But as we're going to soon find out after this, we have Jesus returning on a white horse And then a great war is engaged with the beast and the false prophet. And then comes a thousand-year reign of Christ, something that we call the millennium. And then one more great rebellion against the reign of Christ. Then the judgment throne. And then and only then, the new heaven and the new earth. That is, only then are we ready for the beginning. And so what gives? Well, for one, Revelation doesn't always give us an easy timeline as we might expect. And for another, you might have noticed as we've read through our text that Revelation 19, 6 to 10, that there is the announcement of the wedding supper of the Lamb, but then nowhere do we actually witness the actual event. That is, the announcement is made, and then the event never seems to happen. So what gives? Well, a part of that answer is found back in verse 6. Notice our text said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, notice those last words, the Almighty reigns. I mean, those words sound like it's happened. Evil has now been overthrown. God has now begun his kingdom reign. But the Greek word for reigns is actually not in the present tense. Now, many grammarians have called this form of the verb an inceptive aorist. Now, without getting into all the details as to what that means, let me say this. It would be quite appropriate to translate the last part of verse 6 as, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, has initiated his reign. Look at it this way. Back in Revelation 14, verse 8, 
We read there, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And even further back, all the way back to Revelation eleven fifteen, we read, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, these announcements have been made, and they've been made again. And yet, as we read through Revelation, we came to realize that before Babylon falls and before the kingdom is consummated, human and demonic forces will need to be fought. See, then there's another way of seeing this. When Jesus came to this earth the first time, you're going to remember that his very first sermon began with the words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And truly, the kingdom of heaven had indeed begun to tumble into this present hour, and yet evil continued to battle back, and the fight was engaged. And so, what do we make of this announcement in Revelation 19, verse 6, that the Lord God, the Almighty, has now initiated his reign? See, if the final defeat of the Antichrist still lies ahead, how can that be true? Well, I think the answer is that we have now come into a new era, Revelation 19, 6 and beyond. The capital city of Antichrist has collapsed, and what can that mean? But that God has now decided to finally defeat the Antichrist, and that must be just ahead. God has now moved history into a new chapter. The Antichrist and the rebels are about to be treated differently than they ever have been before. And since this is so, what else can that mean? But that God has now initiated or begun a new phase in his governance of this world in which he stands poised now to finally and ultimately destroy the Antichrist. And once that announcement is made, another one follows. Verse 7 reads, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That is, Babylon has fallen, and the entire church knows what it means. It means that the wedding supper of the Lamb is just before us. Now, most Christians are familiar with that image, that the church is compared to the bride of Christ. And we might think of Paul's instructions in Ephesians 5 to married couples. The husbands, he said, are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. The wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And then in Ephesians 5.32, Paul adds these words. This mystery is profound, he says. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. That is to say, marriage is a reminder of the kind of relationship that we all have with Christ. But notice also that in the Ephesian passage, the marriage is complete. We're not engaged to Christ. We're married to him right now. But in our Revelation passage, it's as if the marriage doesn't happen until after the second coming of Christ. So in a sense, Revelation envisages the church in this present hour as if we are betrothed to Christ. And then, in the hour to come, the actual marriage occurs, replete with a wedding banquet. Now, let me complicate this matter even further by pointing out that in Matthew 25, well, Jesus told a parable that has some of the same marriage themes that we find here in Revelation and also in Ephesians 5. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of ten virgins who are awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom. Now, the ten are not marrying the groom. Rather, the ten are attendants to the wedding. And in that parable, nothing is made of the bride at all, only of those who are invited to the wedding feast. So, what is the church? Are we the attendants to the wedding? Are we the bride? You see, the image shifts. Well, let me further complicate the matter. You know, back in Revelation 19, verse 7, 
The bride is clearly a reference to the church, ready to be married, but in verse 9, we're told, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, now in verse 9, the church is being compared to the wedding guests who are invited to come, not to the bride. Now, what does all that mean? It means that this is an image, and it's a fluid one at that. That is, the image changes without the need for an explanation. That is to say, we shouldn't think of this in a slavishly literal fashion. Rather, it's a parable which explains the importance of preparing ourselves for the moment that Christ calls his church home. And borrowing on the image of the bride, we're told that the bride was not only made herself ready, verse 8 says, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That is to say, her clothing is a divine gift. Well, that reminds us that if we are to be presented to Christ as a holy and a pure bride, our clothing for purity has to be provided. Salvation is always a free gift of God's grace. Salvation is provided. It's not earned or deserved. But I also notice that the clothing provided is clothing that we must put on, and it's the clothing of purity and holiness. Here one's reminded of Paul's words in Colossians 3 verse 12. Paul says, put on then or clothe yourselves as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. See, that's our clothing. See, the fact that salvation is a free gift is not a license to live as we see fit or to sin against our Lord. We are to strive for holiness. We are to put on the clothing of purity. It's our task to fight against sin and to strive towards those actions that will please our Lord. That's how we get ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, everywhere we read the language of the invitation of heaven, it's given to those who have kept themselves pure for our Lord. And when we come to Revelation 22, verse 15, we're going to find out that those who are kept from the new heaven and the new earth are the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, and the idolaters. That is, heaven is for those who see the pure clothing that Christ provides, and then they put it on. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now, don't delay. We're looking forward to seeing you on board. When we studied Revelation 14, verse 12, we read there, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. 
See, it's always been true that the true church of Jesus is comprised of those who are not only believers in the gospel, but we are also obedient to the gospel. For our obedience shows that we truly believe. And when the invitation goes out, as we have noted in Revelation 19, verse 7, that the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, has made herself ready. It means we continue in our faithfulness to our Lord, knowing that the day of the invitation to the wedding surely can't be far away. And so we keep ready. Now, in Revelation 19, verse 9, we read, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Now, the angel who is here speaking to John isn't identified. But if you go back to verse 6, we will remember that this entire scene began when John says, I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of peals of thunder. Now, I have waited to mention this fact until now, because if you go back to the very beginning of the book of Revelation, back to chapter 1, verse 15, we remember there that when John first encountered the risen Jesus while on Patmos, he says that Jesus' voice was like the roar of many waters. And that's important because I think this is going to explain John's confusion. In the next verse, in verse 10, we're going to notice that he mistakes the angel, I think, for Jesus himself, and he falls down at his feet to worship him. That's completely in keeping with what we have read from Revelation chapter 1. And after John encountered the risen Christ, he says, he fell at his feet as though dead. There's nothing else to do but to fall in worship and in humility, for he knows he's unworthy to stand in the presence of Jesus. And of course, since then, when we got to Revelation 4 and 5, we also saw that at the throne of heaven, we remembered the words, to him who sits on the throne, that is, to God the Father. And then, says Revelation 5, 13, and to the Lamb, that is, to Jesus the Son, be honor and glory and might forever. That is, John has seen that in heaven, all honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Therefore, the Son also is worthy of worship. And so in verse 10 of chapter 19, we have to assume that since this entire vision about the wedding supper of the Lamb, you know, began with a loud roar and the voices sounded like many waters, John mistakenly believes that it must have been Jesus who showed him this vision. And furthermore, we notice that the angel says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, what we have in those words begin with the words, blessed are. You probably remember that the most famous sermon that Jesus ever spoke began with the Beatitudes, nine Beatitudes or nine phrases that began with the very same words, blessed are. And in truth, what's fascinating is that throughout the book of Revelation, there are seven Beatitudes. Let me give you a quick list of them. First, Revelation 1 verse 3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the prophecy of this book. And then second, Revelation 14 verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Number three, Revelation 16, verse 15 says, Blessed is the one who stays awake. Number four, Revelation 19, verse 9, which is our text, Blessed are those who invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then number five, Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. And then number six, Revelation 22, verse 7 says, Blessed is the one who keeps the prophecy of this book. And then number seven, Revelation 22, verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. It's really fascinating the amount of times, you know, the number seven appears in this book. And this seven 
that is, seven Beatitudes, is deeply embedded in this book, and and you might miss it if you're not looking for it. But these are the Beatitudes of Revelation, seven of them. And so again, you can hardly blame John when all heaven is roaring now, not because Babylon has fallen, but because God has now begun the next phase in his kingdom reign, and the sound of heaven are inviting him to rejoice and exult and give glory to the Lamb that now, when John hears this beatitude, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, followed by the words, these are the true words of God, that in utter amazement, John then falls before the angel, assuming, I think, that this is Jesus himself. I mean, after all, Who can offer an invitation to the wedding supper if it's not Jesus himself who died for the sins of his people and gave them acceptable clothing to wear? And so, as we come to verse 10, we read, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, this verse has throughout the years been a very important teaching tool for the church of Jesus. See, one recalls Acts 10, verse 25. You're going to remember that because there was a Roman centurion stationed in Caesarea in Israel. His name was Cornelius. He had a vision from an angel who told him that he was going to send to him a man named Simon called Peter. And this man was going to come to him and show him the way to God. And so in anticipation and joy, Cornelius sends word for his relatives and close friends to come and join him and see what God's chosen man would have to say to them. And Acts 10 verse 25 said that when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. Now, in some sense, I mean, that might have been very normal for anyone in Roman culture. But what was Peter's response? Look at verse 26. It says, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I to him a man. Or consider a similar scenario in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, and they heal a man who is crippled from birth. And the outcome is that the people of Lystra say, the gods have come to us in the likeness of men. And so they're ready to offer sacrifices to both Paul and Barnabas. And then Acts 14 verse 15 tells us their response. And Paul is speaking, and he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. In other words, worshiping anything except the Creator is junk religion. Now, in Revelation 19, when John falls at the feet of the angel, I have no doubt that John is not confused about the Creator-Creation distinction. I think he thinks the angel is Jesus. But here, rather than the angel saying, I'm a fellow human being, for clearly this is not a human being, this is an angel, the angel says, I'm a fellow servant with you. And that is to say, it's abhorrent in the Bible that we should worship anyone but God. Now, here's why I'm spending so much time on this issue. It is also clear that the book of Revelation encourages the worship of Jesus. In Revelation 5, After Jesus is declared worthy to break the seals, all of heaven sings, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And then the four living creatures worship both the one on the throne and also the lamb. And of course, that's not just true of Revelation. We're reminded of Matthew 28 verse 9 when the disciples encounter the risen Jesus. The passage says, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Or we might think of Hebrews 1 verse 6, which says, 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. It was the late John Stott who said, no one can call himself a Christian who does not worship Jesus. That's because it's commanded. And if Jesus is not God, then to worship him, that would be a sin. It would be apostasy. It would be an outrage. So from this passage, it becomes clear that the marriage supper of the Lamb is an invitation for all of God's people to come and fall before the feet of Jesus and worship. It's the greatest privilege that can be given to any child of God. Now to the end of our text. See, if it's true that it is that the angel told John, I'm a fellow servant who holds the testimony of Jesus, don't worship me, he says, worship God. So in that case, both the Father and the Son are the one true God. And then the angel adds one more word. He says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There are two ways to understand that. It might mean that all prophecy, when rightly understood, is about Jesus. That is, both the First and the New Testament have but one focus, it's Jesus. Or the angel might have meant that any true testimony about Jesus, that is, who he is and what he did, comes from the prophetic utterance. It's given by a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Well, either case, both are true. All true prophecy is about Jesus, and anything that is about Jesus must have come about because of prophecy. And that all brings us back to that important invitation. Whatever else you do, make sure, my dear friend, that you are among those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You must be there, for the alternative is unthinkable. John, let me ask you, maybe it's a little bit unrelated question, but the number seven comes up in your message today, and it comes up time and time again in Scripture, as do other numbers. But I just simply need to ask you the question, why? Why does the number continue to repeat itself? Yeah, Ben, uh, I think in Revelation 7 is the number of perfection or completion. And so it gives us the idea that God is, you know, completed all things. And so this blessed are statements, the seven of them, tells us that God in a, a full and complete manner has blessed his people. But even that, uh, saying that, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. You know, in the Gospel of John, you have the seven I am sayings. In Revelation, you have the seven blessed are statements. I mean, it's just an indication to me at how amazingly the Spirit of God crafted these letters. Uh, I am overwhelmed by this stuff. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us here again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Revelation 18 to 22 is the passage of Revelation that I will focus on in my fourth and final volume of my series, The Triumph of the Lamb, which chronicles the end of the present age and the creation of a new age in which sin and death and sorrow and evil are forever vanquished. Step away from the uncertainty of life and allow the book of Revelation to present a message of certain hope like no other. As this is the final volume of this series, we want to make it available to you on CD for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for only $75. Either choice includes shipping and taxes. And remember, the entire series can also be heard online at backtothebible.ca or by downloading or subscribing to our Back to the Bible Canada mobile app or podcast. 
To receive your CD series or offer a gift to support this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.